Um, if you would grab your Bibles and open to Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew back in front of you. Uh, we would love for you to uh, take that. If you don't own a Bible, that one's yours. Take that one home with you. We would really love for everybody to have a copy of the Word of God. And if you didn't before, you do now. That one's yours, and we would love for you to, uh, to be able to use that. If you just left yours at home, feel free to borrow that and uh, read through it. This is a vitally important story that we're going to look at today. Exodus 14 um, is, uh, ar- the argument could be made, uh, apart from the story of Jesus himself, this is the most often referenced story throughout the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, the key uh, story of uh, the deliverance of the people of God. Um, so last week we looked at the end of Exodus chapter 13, and uh, we, we made the case that this is a hinge point in the, the book of Exodus. The hinge point meaning before Exodus 13, coming into Exodus 13, the story is all about freedom, about God freeing his people. But after Exodus 13 and forward, it's a story about formation. So we move from the idea that God has freed, redeemed his people to a story of formation where God begins to shape his people. So you remember last week we talked about the idea that God was leading them on the long way so that he could begin to form them and shape them. That formational work becomes the lens through which everything that we're looking at, uh, we, we look at look at those uh, stories and those events through the lens of formation. What is it that God's forming in his people? To ask the question, what's he doing in us? How's he forming us? And so as we look at formation, I want to make a statement that um, some of you will not be able to follow immediately, and some of you uh, may think is a little bit too black and white or a little bit too much on the edge, and some of you are just going to kind of nod along because you uh, maybe have experienced this. And the the statement is this, because of the, the world that we live in, the 21st century Western world basically runs on dopamine. Now, some of you are like, Dopa who? Like, I, don't know, I have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, some of you maybe have done a little bit more research into it, have some idea of what dopamine is and uh, what, what's going on with that. But, he, but here's the case I want to make. Uh, because we live in a world that is generally free from conflict, that is generally prosperous, that is generally comfortable, most of our lives is moving from one comfort and pleasure to another comfort and pleasure. Dopamine is a brain chemical. I'm not a neurobiologist, and so I'm gonna give you the simplified version of my simplified understanding. So uh, there are people here who can explain it far better than I, but for our purposes today, this will be enough. Uh, Dopamine is a brain chemical that is released when we experience some kind of positive stimulation or pleasure. It ties in with adrenaline, and that the idea of good things happening to us releases dopamine uh, within our brains. The, the common language of dopamine is that we have dopamine hits. There are times where uh, something pleasurable happens and our, dopam- our, our dopamine is hit by that thing. But in actuality, the way I understand brain chemistry, uh, what we really feel when we feel pleasure is an increased level of dopamine. So uh, it's not just that there's a hit, it's that it goes above wherever we were in the moment. So here's maybe an easy way to explain it. Um, If you're scrolling through Facebook or Instagram or whatever your addiction of choice is, I mean social media of choice is, whatever that is, um, you're, you're scrolling through and you see something that really engages you and you're like, like that, oh, 
oh, that's really, oh, that's sweet. Or I remember that, I remember the thing. Or that's really funny, I gotta tell my friends. Whatever the thing is, you see it and it, it creates pleasure. There's a dopamine level that's raised in you when you see that. But now if you continue to scroll, you see something else that also is engaging, but because your dopamine's already up from the other thing, that second thing is not nearly as exciting to you as the first thing was. But if you had seen the second thing before you saw the first thing, it would be just as exciting. Does that make sense? So it's, it's as your levels raise, what really is going on is that your levels need to be raised above where they are, wherever they are. And so in a very, very simplistic, oversimplistic way, that's kind of the anatomy of addiction. The idea is that more, more and more dopamine has to be released, so you need more and more in order to feel that same amount of pleasure, that same amount of joy. So the process of dopamine being released as um, our world in its relative comfort and relative prosperity moves from one piece of joy to another piece of joy, the, the question is, how does that form us spiritually? It would be foolish to say it doesn't right? Like it's so central to how we live. The question we need to ask is not does it form us spiritually, but how does it form us spiritually? One of the things we've said over the last several years is we are all being formed spiritually whether it's intentional or not. Spiritual formation is happening with you whether you have intentionally engaged spiritual formation or whether you haven't. So uh, Dallas Willard, you wanted to hear more about Dallas Willard, I knew it. Um, Dallas Willard in Spirit of the Disciplines makes the statement that all of us have a practical theology. And basically what he's saying is that whether you are engaging theology or not, there's a practice by which you orient yourself towards formation. And so if it's a negative theology of the atheist or the positive theology of the monotheist, there's a, a formation that's happening in us. So the nation of Israel, if we go back to Exodus, the nation of Israel is released from Egypt and they're beginning to go on this journey the formational work that's happening is not on a blank slate, right? It's not like God is starting to write on a blank canvas and he's beginning to paint the formation of the people of God. What's happening is after 400 years of slavery in the context of Egypt, they have been formed, right? So there, there is spiritual formation that has already happened. So what God is doing is a counter-formational work to form them in his image, so one of the reasons why there needed to be 10 plagues to release the people of Israel was because those gods that were being judged through the plagues where the God of the Bible said, I am the only God worth following, those, those judgments were shaping and revealing to Egypt, but they were also showing Israel who had been shaped around these gods that the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, is the powerful God, the only God. So the way that we said it last week is that it took a few months and 10 plagues to get Israel out of Egypt, but it would take 40 plus years to get Egypt out of Israel. That process of formation just takes time. And so the question for us is, what does that formation look like and why are we being formed? What is it that God's doing here in Exodus 14? And what does that have to do with the dopamine-filled world that we live in, as we move from pleasure to pleasure, driven by comfort, driven by uh, what, what we long to feel good about, what's God inviting us into? That's the question I want us to wrestle with. And so I want to catch us up, and then we're going to listen to this passage. So as, 
Israel begins to leave, God says to Moses, I'm not going to take them directly into the promised land. I'm going to take them the long way because they're not ready yet for battle. That's going to become ironic here in just a minute. Um, But he said, they're not ready yet for battle. I'm going to take them the long way around. And he begins to lead them, uh, not in the typical way to the promised land, but he leads them into this area. Now, if you just kind of picture, uh, this is a large group, hundreds of thousands of people. Some, uh, some scholars will say uh, well over a million people are traveling together. And they go into this area where Egypt is behind them, the Red Sea is in front of them, and mountains are on both sides of them. So there's this open space that's, again, oversimplistic, but you get the picture, this open space that they've walked into. The Red Sea's here. Mountains are on both sides. And Pharaoh decides, what was I thinking? Like, that's, that's my entire workforce. The, like, the, the whole way that Egypt ru- runs just left. And so there, a, a process begins to unfold. That's where we pick up the story. And so Tina is going to come and read for us in uh, Exodus chapter 14, starting in verse 5. You'll kind of hear the narrative unfold uh, through verse 14. Yeah, right up here. You got it. Yeah. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Phi-Herothroth, opposite Baal, Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the, to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance of the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Would you pray with me? Jesus, as we open our hearts to this powerful story, I pray that you would shape us, form us, just as you did the nation of Israel. Would you form us around these truths? God, help us to be people who learn to trust in faith in the same way that Israel did. And so, God, I pray now that you would guard my words, that they would come from your spirit alone, 
God, that the words that come from my flesh would fall to the ground and be forgotten, but the words that come from your spirit would remain. They would penetrate our hearts and make us more like you. We long to be shaped by you, and so form us according to your will and your image. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So if you're not familiar with the rest of Exodus 14, um, you, you probably have an image in your head. It probably looks like a, a Charlton Heston and a lot of wind, and uh, the, 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 if you're not old enough for that movie, you'll have to imagine. Um, there, the, the Red Sea ultimately parting and uh, the, uh, Israel going through. Um, we're going to get there in just a minute. But what I want you to see first is the way that Israel responds to the leadership of God. So we're first gonna talk about the, the grumbling of Israel, what the grumbling of Israel has to say about our own hearts. Then we're gonna look at the battle that unfolds. Uh, the, the battle is almost kind of in quotes because uh, you're gonna see uh, the battle unfolds in a really unique way. And then ultimately, the takeaway for us. So the grumbling, the battle, and the takeaway. That's the time that you're supposed to put those up, Josiah. He said, what? Yeah. In the first service, he did it early. So this one, he was waiting to do it late. He just wanted to balance it out, I think. So that worked. That works great. Yeah. Awesome. That's great. So the grumbling, the battle, and the takeaway. So it, it's fascinating because what God says to Moses is, the people are not ready for battle, so I'm going to lead them on the long way around. And as God leads them, the very first thing that happens is the most powerful army in the known world with 600 chariots are barreling down on top of them, right? It's like God said they're not ready for battle yet, so he leads them not just into what looks like a trap, but looks like a certain battle that they can't possibly get around. Like what in the world's going on? And of course God was right. Their immediate response is, who said we wanted to leave Egypt? Like, we loved them. We wanted to serve them forever. Why, why'd you take us out of here? Like, we were, we were good, right? There's this, there's this immediate response that they have that is uh, so counterintuitive to what's going on. In fact, I, I love what they say. They say, um, they start out with sarcasm, as we all tend to do when we're in a corner, right? So uh, their sarcasm is, were there no graves in Egypt? Is that why you had to lead us out here to the desert? Now, if, uh, that's, that's kind of funny for us, but hi uh, historians tell us that about 75% of the land in Egypt were graves. Like, there are graves everywhere. Like, all the stuff you know about Egypt, the pyramids and the Sphinx and all, they're all like uh, ways of meditating on and preparing for the afterlife. Egypt was fascinated by the afterlife. So literally, there are graves everywhere. So they're like, they say to Moses, were there no graves in Egypt? Like, didn't you look around? Did you see it? It's actually a pretty good line that they, they used. Like, they're kind of jabbing at him, right? Like, were there no graves? You're going to lead us out here to die? Uh, so, so there's this uh, immediate response that they have that kind of comes back into, uh, like, we didn't want to be here to start with. Why'd you do this to us? Um, uh, we looked last week at David Foster Wallace using the illustration of a, a, a spoiled toddler as a bad way to look at freedom. So if you were with us, basically what he was saying is freedom is not just a lack of restraint. That's what it means to be a two-year-old. When you do anything you want to do, that's not freedom. Um, well, uh, moving from the illustration of a two-year-old to uh, Matt Chandler's illustration of the Israelites during this season is uh, of a preteen at Christmas. So if you're a parent or an aunt or an uncle and you've ever been a part of uh, the intentional gift-giving process, just, just imagine you have a child that really wants a 
whatchamacallit, whatever the thing is, you know, a thing. And the, the whatchamacallit thingamajiggy has a certain, there's a certain kind that they want. Like, they want Model X. And so the Model X of the thingamajiggy is what you're, uh, as a parent, trying to do your best to make sure that you give them exactly what they want. Because you're a benevolent, wonderful parent who wants to please your child, right? So you're going to do everything that you can do. You go out and you search everywhere and you wait in line at Walmart and you do all the stuff. Or you order on Amazon, whatever you do. And, and you have it, you wrap it. And Christmas morning, they open the present, and it's the thingamajiggy, whatchamacallit thing, but you got Model Y, and they wanted Model X, right? Now, of course, if your child is spiritually formed as they should be, <laughs> why, why is that funny? If your child is spiritually formed as they should be, what they should say is, oh, wonderful parental unit, the benevolent uh, leader of this home. I am so grateful for the way that you've provided for me. This is, this is wonderful, and you have tried in a remarkable way, and I'm sure that this is great. However, I really wanted Model X, and this is Model Y. I will be glad to try to use this. I think it'll be wonderful, or maybe at some point in time, if it pleases you, we could try to swap it out for Model X, right? That would, that'd be the right way to respond. What actually happens, of course, is very different than that. The present opens, and they look, and they're, ah, this is the wrong one. This isn't what I wanted. And at that point, you want to do what all sane parents want to do, right? Which is, um, you know what we'll do? You're already unhappy. Let's load up all of your presents in the car and take them all back, because then you have a reason to be unhappy. Or, you know what, let's just take a step further. Let's take all of the things I've ever gotten you. Let's put them in the front yard and burn them, right? Like, <laughs> sane things that parents think, right? Like, like, this is what's happening. The Israelites are being, like, they're being removed from slavery, from the most powerful nation in the world. God has sent 10 plagues, sent them out. Like, they're literally, like, playing with the toys that they've gotten from the Egyptians who are like, just get out. Like, take all of our stuff. We don't care. Just leave. And in the middle of this, they see Egypt coming, and their immediate response is, oh, no, it's terrible. Like, they, they immediately turn. They begin to grumble. So what does God do? Well, I, what I would do is strike them with lightning. That's what I would do, um, as is evident by the way that I talk about Christmas. Um, but that's not what God does. So the battle starts to shift. This move uh, begins to happen where um, Israel is for the first time in this process going to face conflict. Now, lots of times over the next several months of their journey, Israel is going to be asked to themselves step into battle. Like they're going to actually step in and fight. But this first time, uh, theologians call it paradigmatic, which is a fancy word that basically says this thing that's happening is actually going to happen again and again and again, even though it's going to look different. So this, this battle that's about to happen is going to be the first of the battles, and it's going to be actually what's happening under the surface all of the other times. So every time that Israel goes into battle, this image is supposed to be in their head. So they are now stuck. Red Sea in front of them, mountains on both sides, Egypt bearing down on top of them. They're, the, Egypt is coming with the, 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 the strongest army and the most advanced weapons of their day. Chariots marching down on top of them, they're stuck. It does not and will not ever get any worse than this. This is the worst. Like they can't go to the right or the left. They can't go into the sea. And if they go back, they go into Egypt. 
This is as bad as it gets. How in the world does this form them? The first thing I want you to see is they were already freed, and now the oppressor is coming back again. That becomes vitally important for us because many of us experience that same reality, being freed, and as we begin to walk in freedom, that old oppressor starts to come back again. Uh, one of the things when we were talking about baptism that'll happen here in a couple weeks, one of the things I always tell people who are being baptized, and uh, I know lots of pastors who do the same thing, like, get ready. You're making a clear declaration of allegiance. You're saying that I'm following Jesus. That's wonderful. It's uh, exactly what you need to do. And you'll probably have a rough week or two after this. It's just the way it goes. Like, the old oppressor is going to want to come back. And you need to be ready to stand firm. You need to be ready to step into God going to battle for you. So they've already been freed. Now the old oppressor is coming and bearing down on them. What's Moses say? Well, he gives them three commands. We're going to walk through them really quickly. The first command is, don't be afraid. The second command is, stand firm. And the last command is to be silent or to be still. So let's look at them one at a time. He first says, fear not. Now, we need to understand where they're sitting and what's happening. So here comes the entire army of Egypt coming into their very ill-equipped, not ready for battle group of Israelites who've been slaves for 400 years with the mountains on either side and the sea behind them. They should be terrified. Like that's, that is the only sane response is to be afraid, right? Like, and, and he's not saying fear not because there's nothing to be afraid of. He's actually saying fear not. I, I know that you are going to be afraid, but he says later in the conversation because the Lord is going to fight for you. See, their, their lack of fear is not because they're so bold, they're so courageous, their lack of fear is because he's teaching them, shaping them, forming them to trust the God who's going to fight on their behalf. So the first thing is, don't be afraid. In the midst of the battle, don't be afraid. God's got this. Secondly, he says, stand firm. What we all tend to do when faced with battle is to start to back up. Start to, um, you, you hear it in Israel, right? Like, what, we should just go back to Egypt. We should just go back. We should just tell them that we're glad to be their slaves. It's going to be fine. Let's just go back. They, they want to back up. And what God says is, stand firm. This is the exact thing that Paul says to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 6. So right before what uh, you probably know as the armor of God passage, as, as Paul is about to say, take all of these things on as you get ready for battle. The first thing he says, before he says uh, about shields and swords and helmets and any, before any of that, he says, first, stand firm. Don't back up. Stand firm. And as you stand, there, prepare for battle. Don't back away. Stand firm right where you are. And then it's fascinating because this last term, be still or to be silent, literally, is not, um, uh, not a mom with a baby saying, it's okay, hush, hush, relax, shh, it's okay. This is God saying literally, shut your mouth, no more. Like, stop talking. Like, it's very direct, it's very terse. Like, stop talking, shut your mouth. Why? 
Well, there's all kinds of different explanations for it. Um, it, it may be um, that there's just a, a, a stillness that's being called, like stop striving, stop, stop wrestling, just stop. But I like to think of it, some of you are uh, similar to me in this, I think of it quite literally in language, like stop talking. Because my, my skill set is relatively narrow. I don't know if you know that. Um, one of the few things I'm really good at is talking. I can talk. You're like, yeah, we know you talk. We, we got that. Uh, like I, I, so I, I, one of my defaults is I control situations through my voice, through talking. Like I, I can uh, do what needs to be done because I can speak. I can communicate things clearly. So like if I look back at my life, some of the most formational, difficult, but formational times in my life or when I was overseas and nobody spoke my language and I had to be quiet because I couldn't control the situation. I'm so used to being able to use language to control the situation. And so what I picture God saying to Israel is, don't, don't try to control it. Shut your mouth. Shut your mouth. I got this. Like, just stop talking. So he says, don't be afraid. Even though fear is justified, don't be afraid. The Lord is going to fight for you. Stand firm, don't back up, stand right where you are, don't try to run away, stay right where you are, and shut your mouth. I'm going to fight for you. The entire Egyptian army is bearing down on them, and Moses' command is, do nothing. <laughs> like, how, how crazy must that have been for them? But part of the process is for us, you're going to find this in Israel as they journey, when we try to fix it on our own, it almost always gets worse. Like, how many times have we experienced that, right? Like, it's like, I, I think I have a plan, I think I can figure this out, and rather than standing firm, being quiet, and waiting on God to, to fight for me, I try to fix it, well, I just make the problem worse. And so what God's trying to form into them is for them to learn to trust him when the situation is as bad as it could possibly be. Now, um, you likely know what, what, know what happens here, but let me just give you a brief overview. Charlton Heston holds out his uh, staff, just kidding, it was Moses, um, holds out his staff over the Red Sea, the Red Sea parts, and the entire nation of Israel walks through on dry ground to the other side of the Red Sea, and as the Egyptian army is following, uh, they start to go into that space that was vacated by the water, the chariot wheels start to get stuck, and uh, Moses again holds out his staff, the water comes down and drowns the entire Egyptian army, uh, literally all they did was walk forward. That was it. That's all that happened. So um, that, that battle is uh, the iconic battle that the Old Testament writers reference over and over and over again. The psalmist, uh, multiple times through the Psalms, that story is recounted through the New Testament. That story is brought up multiple times. The question for us is, what do we do with it? Like, what, what's the takeaway for us and if you're following along, what in the world does it have to do with dopamine? So we'll get there in just a second. What, what, what's the takeaway for us? So, so two things emerge by the nation of Israel coming through the Red Sea. Uh, the first one is where they're placed. They're going to come through the Red Sea, and they're going to end up in the Promised Land. And if you plot the Promised Land, plot the promised land on a map, then what you're going to find is they're right between over the next thousand years, the most powerful countries in the known world. So they're going to be where the promised land is. To the west will be Egypt, and to the east will be Assyria, and they are called to be a light to the nations. 
God leading them through the Red Sea is literally taking them to the, to the specific place that God wants them to be. And God fighting for them against their enemies is going to free them to trust the vengeance of God rather than their own need for justice. So let me try to unpack that for you as it relates to some New Testament passages. So first, would you turn to the book of Acts? In Acts chapter 17, in Acts 17, Paul is talking to uh, the men of Athens, and um, he's uh, giving them this uh, broad kind of overview of their, uh, their pantheistic views of, of uh, all of these different pagan gods. And he says, uh, this, is, this is the one God, the, the real God. And then if you jump down in Acts chapter 17 to verse 20. 26, let's start there. It says this, and he, this is God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he's actually not far from each one of us. What Paul says to them is, God has determined the place and the time that all people will live. He's put you where he's put you on purpose. And so now if you go back to the nation of Israel, what they're learning, what they're being formed into through the Red Sea is that God is placing them for a specific purpose to be a light to the nations right in between these two very powerful nations. Just like he's placed you in your neighborhood, just like he's placed you in your workplace, just like he's placed you in your circle of friends, there's an intentionality with which God has placed us. Why? So that when people reach out for God, they wouldn't have to reach very far. That they would find you and they would find me. And so there's a, there's a placement aspect of this. But if you flip just a few pages further to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 12, there is uh, also this fascinating idea that if God is going to fight for them, if God is going to uh, be the God of justice, he is going to uh, take down the oppressor, the nation of Israel is freed to love people, to actually care about the people around them because God is willing to fight for them. So let me read for you. Let's start in verse 14 of Romans chapter 12. Paul says this, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Now I know that read really quickly, but imagine what he just said. There are people who are actively opposed to you. They're doing things to make your life worse. Uh, bless them. Don't curse them. Love them. Give them blessing. Speak blessing over them. Let's keep going. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now let's just pause. Can we just agree together that this is, this is very difficult? Like it, it reads really nice. Like Paul's just in these short little snippets, hey, do this, do this, do this, do this. Like live at peace with everybody as much as it's up to you. When somebody does evil things to you, don't do evil back to them, but love them instead. When somebody's opposed to you, bless them. Associate with lowly people who are um, not the normal people that you would interact with. Go after them. Go engage with them. 
Uh, live in such a way where uh, joy just comes out of you. And you're saying, like, this is really difficult. This is, a, this is a tough thing. How do you do it? Well, look at verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul says the, the, the core issue here is do I trust that the God of the universe is able to do justice? Do I trust that God can fight on my behalf? Or do I believe that I need to step into it? Do I believe that I need to avenge myself? Do I need to make what's wrong right? Or can I trust that the God of the universe can handle it? Like how many times for us do we rise up because of injustice, because we have been hurt, because we have been harmed, because people that we love have been harmed, and we rise up to try to fix it rather than trusting that the God of the universe is able to do justice? See, what, what's happening to the nation of Israel is that God, as he delivers them through the other side of the Red Sea, they're looking back and they're seeing the oppressor, that, who, who, by the way, is doing the wrong thing, right? Can we agree, like, oppressing them is wrong? I mean, this is, this is evil. What Pharaoh is doing is evil. It's wrong. But, but when they look back, what they see is that God has fought for them. And so now they're freed to love people, because God is able to fight on their behalf. So what's the takeaway for us? Well, um, I'll say it this way, and then I'll explain. The takeaway for us is this, as great as it is, cannot be what it means to be the church. This thing that we're doing right here, uh, this is a dopamine hit. Now, uh, I, I want to explain to say it's okay like, look, when they got to the other side of the Red Sea and they turned around and the water came back down and they saw the chariots floating, you think that wasn't a dopamine hit? Like, they were, they were pumped, and they were pumped for a long time, right? Like, it was, it was good. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm simply saying this, that if this is the extent of what it means to be the church, then church is actually about you whether you think it is or not. Because when you come, the, 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 the filter, rightly, the filter through which you're thinking is, do I like the songs that Dan picked or don't I like the songs that Dan picked? Is it too loud? Do I like that guitar or don't I like that guitar? Right? It's all about what I prefer. Is Brian funny today or is he trying to be funny today or is he just failing at all of it? Like it's, right? And by the way, this is me trying to be funny. This is as good as it gets. This is it. This is it. So, so, but it's all about, right, like it's, it's what, what raises my level of dopamine. I'm not thinking that, but it's, it's all about pleasure. The challenge with the church in a time where relative comfort and relative prosperity rule is that we are drawn into the church being the place where we also experience pleasure. And that's not the point. Now, it's not bad. Like, look, I, I want the music to be meaningful and helpful. I want to be engaging enough that you're able to pay attention to what I'm talking about. I, those things are, they're not bad. They're just not the point. Let me explain it this way. Um, raise your hand if over the course of your lifetime, you have knowingly been wheeled into an operating room or you've walked into the back of an emergency room because something's wrong with you. One of those two things have happened. You can, you can remember that. 
So if you look around, almost everybody has experienced that. Now, apart from those of you who work in the emergency room, um, how many people know what color the walls were? Like, did, did you critique the interior decorations as you were wheeled back into the operating room? Like, can, can you pull out what music was being played over the loudspeaker? And were, were you concerned about it being the wrong music? Like, you don't care, right? Like, the whole point of being wheeled into the emergency room, the whole point of going into the operating room is fix me so that I can go out and live my life. Like, take care of whatever the problem is. Like, that's the point. The point is not, let me critique the interior de decor. There's this thing, um, I, I don't know if you watch the news, there's some tension over in Eastern Europe right now, like Russia and Ukraine and stuff going on. And, and today, um, as it has been for several weeks, there are meetings in the Pentagon somewhere that's probably like a war room kind of thing, and there are people sitting around having very intense conversations. Do you think any of them are wondering whether the next song is gonna be the song that they like that's playing over the loudspeakers? Like, like, oh man, it's Barry Manilow, my favorite, right? Like, hey, watch it. <laughs> There's none of that. Why? Because that's not the most important thing right then. So, so think of it the same way. W when you come to the gathering of the saints, on a Sunday, Sunday morning, you come together, the, the lens that you're looking through should be, am I getting what I need to be on mission this week? Not whether I like it or not. Not whether I have a dopamine hit or not. Not whether they have the latest, coolest, whether they do it the right way or the wrong way, whether they do it according to my preference or somebody else's preference. Or, like, like that's, that's just the wrong lens. It's not even that it's wrong to think. It's just not the primary lens. The lens that we're called to look through is what does it look like for us to get on mission? And do we have what we need to do the mission that God's called us into? God is seeking to form Israel into a missional people. He's gonna place them in a very strategic place and he's going to show them, I am capable of enacting justice. You love the people around you. And in the same way, he calls us to do the same thing. So the question that we need to ask is, do we trust God enough to be on mission with him? Now here's, here's where trust comes in. You have to use a little bit of imagination. But when Israel crossed the Red Sea, somebody was the first one who walked between those big walls of water, right? Like somebody stepped forward and said, oh, whoa, look at all that, right? And, and they know if that comes down, it's not gonna go well for me, right? But they, they took that step of faith to walk across. Our calling as the people of God is to step out in faith, trusting that God has called us to mission, that he is going to equip us for what we need to do, and that he can fight on our behalf. We don't have to fight it. He can fight on our behalf. And so rather than me stepping into a battle, I'm seeking to simply love people where he's placed me because he's placed me there on purpose. Now here's the challenge. In a world with relative peace and relative prosperity, there are no shortage of people who want your time and resources in order to give you pleasure. It's not just the church. 
everywhere. everywhere. It's, it's the game that's on your phone. It's the clothes that you're being invited to buy. It's the food that you're going to go get after you're done here, unless you're coming to the welcome class, in which case we just have a few small snacks. That's it, just a few little things. Um, it's all of the stuff around you is, is all constantly begging for your attention, begging for your, your resource, begging for what you have. Mission is the only way to fight the dopamine rush. The only way to stand against that is to say, there's actually something greater that's calling me forward. It's not about what I want right in the moment. It's not about what gives me pleasure right in the moment. It actually is about what God is calling me into. The person that God is making me to be and the people that God is calling me to reach. And so whether it's church or whether it's the rest of the world, your attention is going to be pulled away or it's going to, your attention is going to be begged for at least. And so we have to make the decision, no, I'm not taking my time and energy and resource over there. Instead, I'm stepping into mission. That's what God was forming in Israel. And that's what God is desiring to form in us. So that's a lot. Um, What what I'm simply going to do is I'm going to ask you to be quiet for a minute. To take some precious precious silence, of which um, many of us don't get nearly enough of, and to... Be still, be silent, to fear not, stand firm, and to just listen, not talk, just listen. And so uh, the team's going to come, they're going to lead us uh, in just a minute, and uh, as they do, I'm just going to take a couple minutes of silence. I just want to ask you to place yourself open in front of God. Maybe that's open hands, maybe that's just closed eyes, whatever that is, a posture where you can hear. And just ask, Holy Spirit, would you speak? Would you show me where I need to be stepping into your mission instead of being concerned about what I want, the pleasure that's out in front of me or the thing that I am drawn back to, whether it's positive or negative, whether it's an illicit uh, addiction or uh, whether it's just like wanting to be with my family and being able to enjoy the life that God, whatever those things are, God, show me where what I want is standing in the way of your mission. And I'm not stepping into what you're calling me to. So just invite him to to do that. It's going to look different for all of us. So Holy Spirit, would you speak to us? Help us to hear from you.